This conversation on delight features Andrew Atwood, Thomas Klasnick, Jimenez Lai, Michael Loverich, Anna Niemark, and Ellie Ward. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. People think that Anna and I sit in like a white room and sort of frown at each other. And <laughs> I take, there's nothing that is more delightful to me than our work. For us, we can engage in other sort of sensibilities or uh, sensations such as humor, hilarity, also disgust. I mean, chalk is a pretty big objective in our work. It's, I mean, maybe the darkest thing I've ever done. It's really, really dark. Uh, it involves um, murder, um, punishment, uh, strict rules, and an upholding of relationships between citizens, so, so talking about politics. So it's definitely not delightful. But that's, that's a reaction to the times as well, to austerity, you know, it's, it's a kind of um, like, yeah, we need to make everything really fun, really colourful, because, you know, mm. it's all a bit shit. Many of the participants in this issue of attention have a common interest in work that can be considered, to quote from a recent symposium on delight at Princeton University, in which many of them participated, flagrantly formal, insincere, frivolous, and maybe even silly. In this piece, we will hear about how delight has emerged as both a legitimate and perhaps legitimizing term in architecture. We'll start with Andrew Atwood. There's nothing that is more delightful to me than our work. It is delightful. I mean, it's it, like, it's fun. I, 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 I think I'm not trying to be miserable. I, that is not what we're trying to do. Um, and I think you can ask anyone who works for us that there is like, just like at the most simple level, there is a lot of sort of delight. In, the, in producing the things that we produce, I don't do, I don't make them to be miserable. I, I don't get to sort of challenge myself, but I take a kind of delight in those things. I mean, and so to me, I, like that we exist as some kind of uh, neocon, Donald Rumsfeld sort of thing. Like that is exactly the opposite of how I think we were, and I think we've been like again to the, 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 the people that have, the, not that many people, the people that have looked at our. Or work, don't think that we're somehow like not taking delight in it because we certainly are. At almost every level, everything that we've ever done, I thought was funny. I, I only say that just because I think it's funny. I, I, it is also funny that people don't seem to think that there isn't an element of kind of humor and just delightfulness and pleasure in doing the stuff that we do. Next, we'll hear from Michael on how the term has become legitimate. One thing that's pretty interesting is that delight has been pretty much when I was younger and in undergrad and kind of in the past 15, 20 years, it didn't seem like delight was that important in architectural conversations. Seriousness was definitely the thing that was primary. So I think a lot of what we were seeing is kind of a reaction to that, but I think it's coming up in quite a few different ways. We kind of see it, the Bitter Tank Farm sees it as more like pleasurable, sexual, that people can actually engage with architecture in a totally different way than they've kind of been viewed as participating in architecture in the past. Some of that comes from 10 years ago, there was also kind of a big push for interactivity, like digital interactivity, and we kind of wanted to put the human back into it and actually make it something that humans can engage with architecture in a totally different way. And so that kind of our take on it is much more sensual and sexual and tactile. What does that actually mean? You can engage, like for us, we can engage in 
other sort of sensibilities or uh, sensations such as humor, hilarity, also disgust. And I think all of those are pleasurable to different people. And I think the other thing is that delight and pleasure, it's also somewhat of a generic term, not in just that there's so many different subcultures and so many different takes on what actually constitutes delight or pleasure. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about what's going on is that, especially with the group that you kind of brought together, is that everyone's kind of dealing with delight, but they definitely are taking on a different sort of subculture, I think. So in terms of delight being a problem, initially, at least when we were starting to get into this, we did see delight as a reaction. I guess at that point, we didn't really necessarily think of it as a project or a problem, but like phrased in that sort of way. I, I honestly think some of those things are reaction against like work like ours. Did they somehow think that we're in opposition to that? That we're these sort of self-serious people who like paint rooms with white and, and that we're just sort of over-intellectualizing everything. And um, which honestly... I mean, it's not what we're doing. So, I, like, for me, I think I view it as a kind of, it's a sort of reactionary position. Now, with quite a different point of view, here's Ellie and Thomas, who take a critical stance toward delight, which they see as a result of entertainment culture. I was reading something recently about, and it was, in a, in a sense, a critique of the culture of pop-ups, which we've had, in a way, as a, a balm to solve something else that was missing or absent in either what was being built or people's lives uh, that there was this sort of idea of circus in a way that you bring something to town to entertain people and that you know maybe that is a uh, quite a hollow approach i do think there is the sense of entertainment and fun mm. in a lot of culture you know, i'm really bored of the Carsten Holler's uh, slides being tacked onto things as a all, you know, what is it, what is this thing of you know, going, going to the gallery to like going to Disney World or it's forced fun isn't it? I mean, there's been a lot of critique of fun, <laughs> mm. like we've had a bit too much fun maybe the last few years, and now people are kind of either getting sick of it or they're just seeing it reappropriated by people who, who are u- using it in a way to, you know. But this aesthetic of the, 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 the kind of 80s postmodernism, which is quite a, a fun thing in a way, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I'm not saying it's in, so, in, in, in its original so that, but manifestation, that's I mean. but maybe today... So the contemporary Yeah, there's a use of it to... to, to as almost you know, like a mask to give this sense of happiness and enjoyment to what is a really sad, miserable <laughs> life. Which is why um, Banksy's um, Dismal Land is quite is a timely kind of antidote to all of that stuff. There's something to be said for it, this idea of delight maybe or fun that is almost a necessity, I'd say, for people who are commissioning the work things have turned around in the sense that now if you were building a, a block of flats for people if it looked like a boring, dull place but was actually really cleverly planned and you know, actually a fantastic place to live, 
I don't think it. I think because it looked like a boring place, he wouldn't get the um, the support for it. Mm. You know, I think there's something about the way something is appears in the pages of a, a magazine or online that need to immediately communicate the you know what the, what the client wants to sell. So but that's that's a reaction to the times as well to austerity. You know, it's it's a kind of um, like yeah, we need to make everything really fun, really colourful, because, you know, mm. it's all a bit shit. I think the, mi- the minute it becomes tick box, the minute I think that's when people start to move on, anyway, well, anyone, you know, working mm. kind of critically. And I think that's definitely been happening here. There is a, there's a lot of kind of chat about fun and how kind of cynical that, you know, the, the manifestation of that is now, how constructed it is. Um, I was just thinking about uh, Assemble's Brutus playground that they did at the RBA recently, and mm. you know, in a way, that was a kind of reaction to that soft, fluffy, you know, fun shoots. So, you mm. know, it was a really kind of uh, critical kind of. Um, yeah, that was a clever way of dealing with it. Yeah, because it was still fun, it was still squidgy, mm. you know, and it still had, you know, it, was, it was still colourful actually, but in a completely different, you know, really critical manner. Finally, we'll hear from Jimenez on hedonism, and then return to Michael, who reflects on the difficulty of talking about delight in the discipline and the context for delight in his own work. I guess one of my subscriptions of outlook on life is hedonism. I mean, like there are a few ways of going about life. I guess, you know, nihilism is also pretty attractive as an idea, which I think some, some, I sometimes subscribe to. But hedonism is interesting because, you know, I guess the definition of hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure being the intrinsic good. Um, and so there is no other uh, purpose but pleasure itself. And so to, to me, yeah, of course, when I, when I hear the word delight, I think about that. Um, I guess when I was younger, I, I saw this performance or interview uh, spoken by John Cage, within which he humorously said, I prefer laughter to tears. And I say, I would say yes, I, me too, of course I prefer laughter to tears. And maybe to this point I would even think about painters that I like. Uh, so for example, of course I like Van Gogh, who doesn't, but I also really enjoy uh, Lichtenstein as a painter. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about the painterliness of Lichtenstein. I think there are painters who try really hard to hide and conceal the brushstrokes. And they're, paint, they're painters who want to make sure you see every last brushstroke. And so the exertion of effort is something that is maybe outcry to the world. I worked hard. <laughs> or, you know, or I guess the concealment of effort in the work of, let's say, Lichtenstein is saying, I don't care if you know if I worked hard. In fact, I'm going to work hard so you know that, so you don't know that I worked hard. And in art history, there is there is this term spessatura, which I you know over the years really began to try to take ownership of. Spessatura is maybe a kind of Renaissance or Baroque idea where uh, you want to conceal efforts and you want to look effortless. I guess it's the effort of looking effortless. And so, in a way, you know, who cares if you're struggling or having a lot of problems? The social etiquette or your social responsibility is to make people less worried and more happy and that's a, a more generous and kind thing to do for the, for your peers and for those around you of course pleasure we were particularly influenced by um the teaching that was going on at ucla um in the mid 
2000s, particularly with Jason Payne and Heather Roberts. They were definitely one of our biggest influences in kind of allowing us to see humor, delight, all these things in kind of a different light. And especially in comparison to even some of their colleagues that were going on at UCLA there at the same time who might fit into their same sort of era, their same sort of project, but they were taking on it in a completely different manner. There was quite a bit of seriousness, but also like overwork. Basically, there was kind of a attitude that if you aren't working extremely hard, you aren't doing a good job. We just didn't kind of believe in that so much. I mean, this is kind of tied into just the idea of architecture as a pleasurable, pleasurable thing. Uh, we like producing architecture. We think that the process of making architecture should be pleasurable as well. We're not the most analytical of firms out there. And I think that was something that we also kind of were associating with being very serious is that there was kind of a deconstruction of architecture to all of its kind of the extreme case in terms of geometry, organization, and all of, of all of these approaches, but none of them actually took into account pleasure or like material qualities or any sort of other sort of analysis. And so this was our way of kind of working with those sort of approaches, but trying to apply analysis to pleasurable ideas. It's a bit challenging because it's not something that you can categorize or describe in kind of a clear way that you can in terms of things like the nine square grid. It's very clear, like how that can be broken down in certain ways. Pleasure and delight work in a totally different way, which I think is somewhat interesting just because, and it's reflected in kind of all these subcultural subcultures of delight that are out there. And I think we're still trying to formalize a way of critiquing this stuff. There is kind of a popularity, trendiness of pleasure, like analytical processes of pleasure be, becoming part of architectural discourse. I think for the way that we've been trying to incorporate it, there is kind of a challenge because a lot of this becomes very personal work because that's the easiest way to sort of tap into pleasure and delight, which is also something that was very much discouraged like early on in my architectural education. And I think that's actually, I still confront that quite a bit is there is desire to eradicate the personal. Some of these studies actually become very personal. It's the easiest way of kind of bouncing ideas around and testing pleasure is to see how Antonio and I kind of engage with these projects. We've been pretty lucky in that we've been able to actually build a lot of early on and kind of test out some ideas and see how people begin to engage in the work outside of architectural com community, outside of the computer. It's pretty fascinating because in some ways we've been able to learn a lot about other people's ideas of pleasure through sort of getting the work out to non-architects. The amount of commentary that we've received on some of our renderings about the grotesque sexuality that they exuded kind of dumbfounded us occasionally, which we actually really enjoyed. So I guess a lot of it does become getting reactions from people. I think this is one of the challenging, most challenging things that we actually had have to talk about, have to kind of deal with is how do we talk about our work maybe in a non-personal way or in as a strategy 
I mean, shock is a pretty big objective in our work, especially in the beginning. We're kind of moving into a different phase where maybe it's not nearly as important as it was earlier on. For us, some of the, again, some of the anthropomorphic qualities did probably come a little bit from the previous history before we kind of entered school, where there was kind of a, an idea about smoothness of continuity of not getting into figures at all. And for us, the anthropomorphic was a way of kind of bridging between surfaces and figures and bodies. You've been listening to a conversation on delight. Interviews were conducted by Joseph Bedford, Kurt Gambetta, Mark Achari, Joanna Grant, and Kevin Pazik between 2014 and 2015. Produced for the third issue of Attention, the audio journal for architecture, in 2016 by Griffin Ofish.